0: Welcome to Episcopals, bringing you the latest in faith-based advocacy from the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations. Um, so again, welcome. Uh, my name's Alan Yarborough. I'm excited to be joined by our two guests, uh, two colleagues, actually. Uh, really wonderful to work with these two folks. Um, and uh, Daniel, I was uh, gonna start with you. I was wondering if you could introduce yourself. Uh, tell us a bit uh about who you are and what you do for for global partnerships
1: thank you so much alan Uh, my name is daniel karanja and i serve as the partnership officer for the episcopal church uh, for africa and in my work i'm primarily working with all the provinces anglican provinces in Africa, about 12 of them. These are 12 large areas that uh, uh, primarily, um, primarily focus on, on Anglicans or Episcopalians, to, to use the, the term that we use here in the US. And my job is to inspire and build a natural relationships across the church, ecumenical relations, and interfaith uh, contacts that, that that I come into contact with. This work offers opportunity for prayer, for companionship, for advocacy work, to seek resources that could also help the growth of the church and inspire faith and discipleship here within the Episcopal Church. And the extent of the work, Guys from Burundi to uh, Central Africa, Mozambique, Angola, Congo, Sudan, South Sudan, Kenya, and Tanzania, among others. Most of my primary contacts are primates like bishops, bishops, parish leaders, and a very important constituency in this work uh, theological educators and leadership trainers, those who are involved with preparing the next generation of leaders within the church in Africa.
0: Thank you, Daniel, that's uh, really helpful. And I uh, just want to note as well, appreciate the work that you do uh, and the whole Global Partnerships team uh, in, in part because of, of the fruit that bears through the Young Adult Service Corps. Uh, I was lucky enough to serve as a missionary for the church through that program. I was placed in Haiti, so not uh, not on the continent of Africa. Um, but still, a product of relationship building and that that work that you just you just reviewed uh, around the world through the Anglican Communion. Um, so it really is a wonderful uh, opportunity that builds uh, connection, you know, here uh, in the U.S. Um, and with with others uh, across the world. Um, and then, since uh, I served in Haiti, I've been working at the Office of Government Relations with Patricia Casari, um, who is, I'll uh, let introduce herself and and share a little bit about her portfolio with us.
2: Thanks, Alan, and hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, So my name is Patricia Kisari. I serve as the International Policy Advisor uh, on Advocacy for the Episcopal Church, uh, but also for the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, uh, our full communion partner uh, here in, in the U.S., um, in terms of areas of focus for me, uh, as you can imagine, having an international portfolio is very vast, uh, but we do have some priorities uh, that we work on uh, on a yearly basis. Um, so this year, you know, my focus really is to advocate for robust foreign assistance, uh, meaning uh, funding from the U.S. government to support uh, international programs that both uh, look to serve people who are experiencing humanitarian crises, uh, but also to to support countries in their development, economic development uh, initiatives. Um, other areas that I focus on really quickly uh, are gender justice, particularly on preventing gender-based violence. Uh, uh, our focuses usually women and girls um, and focusing mostly on how we do uh, programs and how we address gender-based violence as a country uh, when we are operating in those in, in, in different ways, uh, whether it's humanitarian spaces or when we're supporting development activities. Uh, the other key piece that I want to make sure to mention is uh, the work that we do around peace building and conflict prevention Uh, with our partners overseas. uh, The US government, uh, although spends a lot of money on military uh, assistance, uh, has some uh, programs that are not as as huge, but they're there uh, around peace building and conflict prevention uh, around the world. Uh, So that's, in in a nutshell, is what I do with the Office of Government
0: Relations. Great. Thanks, Patricia. And it's just wonderful to be in conversation with you both today. Um, So I have some some questions for both of you. Um, Some apply more to one of you than the other, but I hope that it can facilitate um, an opportunity for us to learn together and, and to see where Episcopalians can plug into this work. Uh, and so the the first one, you know, Patricia, though, may be at least initially more uh, more directed towards you. Uh, what was the Africa Summit uh, that the Biden administration held, uh, and why do you think the Biden administration decided to host that summit two years into into President Biden's term?
2: Yeah, um, so the Africa Summit was a summit that uh, President Biden held. Uh, in the fall, last year, I've uh, invited uh, leaders from African countries who came to DC uh, to have consultations and discussions around different issues that affect uh, African countries as a bloc. Um, it was only the second time uh, that uh, the U.S. has held that such a summit. Uh, the first one was held by President Obama um, years ago. Um, so it was celebrated by many people, including myself, uh, because one, it was an indication of, uh, the desire to re-engage with the continent. Um, but it was also a reminder that, uh, we need to do more because it's only the second time, uh, that kind of summit has been held. I mean, there's so many assumptions as, as in, in terms of, uh, what could have been the driver of such a summit, Um, but I think one thing I I like to to highlight and maybe might be the reason uh, that went into the calculation to the US government uh, why such a summit would be important uh, is when you look at what's happening in the world right now, uh, Africa is the fastest growing continent uh, and the continent is also the most useful continent. So, they have the largest population of young people. um, And then they have this growing middle class. uh, And all these three aspects really present an opportunity for engagement uh, to the youth government that I think has not been uh, something that they have paid attention to as much in the past. Uh, So, it presents an opportunity uh, for expansion of youth of engagement in Africa beyond what's already being done at the moment.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's Africa Africa's such a, a large and diverse place, um, and I think both just on its own, but then also with interesting and parallel dynamics within the Anglican community in itself. Uh, Daniel, I don't know if you have anything to sort of add to what Patricia shared or reflect on to what Patricia just shared about the, the summit and new attention on the continent of Africa.
1: Sure. So traveling on the continent, which which I've done quite uh, a bit, you can see the footprint of China all over the place, whether it's the the, the highways, the the significant construction projects that are going on. So I would say that geopolitical realities with with China in Africa, but the U.S. cannot afford to be on the sidelines. Um, I would say probably this, this whole engagement and disengagement kind of creates some ambivalence among the African leaders, because one administration will, will come and, you know, have a different policy for Africa or no policy for Africa. Then another administration will, will focus on U.S. national security interests that have nothing to do with the local populations. So, I would say that probably the the summit was an opportunity to reaffirm shared interests and hopefully go beyond that. It it was encouraging to see the the president's wife um, visit Africa shortly after after the summit and being able to go not to the cities, but go to to the villages and meet with women and learn and hear directly. From, from those who are vulnerable to human suffering. So I think the summit was timely, but in order for, for that chain of trust to be unbroken, it, it will have to be sustained beyond just, you know, a mere one week summit or a drop in here and there by the, the, the Secretary of State on the so-called hotspots. But the reality that China and Russia, now Russia, that they have you know, significant footprints uh, in Africa, a- and the US cannot afford to be on the side of it.
0: Well, and you know, knowing that uh there are dozens of countries and, and even more dynamics you know going on um across across Africa. And uh, you mentioned several um, in your introduction, Daniel, but I'm wondering sort of what um from the African perspective, such as it is, I know that's a very big topic. Um, what are some of the challenges facing the continent over uh, overall right now, um, and particularly where the U.S. may or may not be involved?
1: So I would start with vulnerability to natural disasters. Uh, I mean, we are right now witnessing the destructive forces of cyclone, Freddie, that hit Mozambique twice before moving up north into Malawi. And the the devastation that the morning of, I was on the phone with the Bishop of Zambesia uh, in Mozambique, Vicentem Sosa. And this morning we received a a note from the Archbishop of of Mozambique and Angora asking for humanitarian assistance. So I would say that some of the challenges that are facing Africa, it is so vulnerable to even disasters that that could be prevented well given the the tie-in with climate change and all the challenges i think it's it's important for for the us to remember and the episcopalians specifically to remember that whatever partnerships they have they are very important to sustain because they pay huge dividends in times of of crisis and in times of disaster. Food security is also another another area of concern. Um, Before this call, I was on the phone with a dentist from Nairobi in Kenya, who was sharing with me about the the devastation that Kenya has suffered as a result of many, many, many months of drought, And not just Kenya, actually a good part of the continent has suffered uh, food insecurity as a result of rain-fed agriculture. And, and this is an area that, that is highly preventable. If if there are projects that could focus on non-rain-fed agriculture, then communities can have self-sustainable um, resources to, to feed for themselves. And the last one I would say is the vulnerability during transitions of political power. Where we have uh, we see the most uh, you know, the worst of, of humanity come out um, in ethnic violence that is witnessed in, in many, many, many places. Again, this is an area that that we know the calendar, we know the cycle. Why should we wait until it comes around, it comes around again? Well, there's so much that can be done in between. But it's unfortunate that it only makes the news cycle when bad stuff has happened, but when not when we have opportunities to do good and do it well.
0: And I want to I want to uh, come back to that, the, the doing good and, and doing it well. Um, but Patricia, I'm wondering if, if you have anything to to add or even just affirm uh, in terms of the challenges facing facing the continent.
2: Right. Yeah, I think the the climate crisis uh, is a big one for the continent. Um, you know, Daniel mentioned uh, farming experience in the Horn of Africa right now, for example, uh, is a big challenge. Um, so the U.S. government has programs such as uh, what they call PREPARE uh, to support some climate adaption initiatives in, in Africa, but it's a much smaller program that was needed. Um, so that's that's one thing I wanted to highlight. The, the other challenge maybe if, uh, I would like to add is youth unemployment, um, mm-hmm. and this is not talked about often in in the policy circles, but it's it's really really critical. The average age of uh, of uh, young people in Africa, like you know, in terms of population, is nineteen, uh, and the African Union defines youth anybody from 15 to 35 belongs to that kind of age group. Um, And so when you look at the way uh, people are working or unemployment uh, as such, uh, you find that one in third youth uh, people in Africa are not uh, not employed. And then another third of it, of the population, uh, is actually vulnerably employed, meaning they are working in an environment where their jobs are not secure. Uh, So if you think about uh, sustainable development goals, these lofty goals out of the United Nations that all countries discussed and agreed upon, there's no way we can meet sustainable development goals in Africa if we're not addressing the issue of youth unemployment. Uh, so that, that is really critical to really insert in the conversations uh, here in D.C., but also, you know, in spaces like the United Nations and the African Union in Addis Ababa, where all African countries uh, meet and, and discuss African solutions. Um, and another, another piece I would add, uh, just to, to kind of finalize this point, is the issue of uh, sovereign debt, Uh, or in other words, public debt, um, is increasingly becoming uh, a problem for the country. So, you know, we went through COVID and COVID experience has really profoundly uh, impacted the continent negatively. So right now, for example, 22 countries are either in debt crisis or debt, I mean, debt distress or are going into debt distress. And a lot of that has to do with what they had to to use uh, to respond to COVID. But also, really, a lot of African countries don't have good ways of uh, revenue collection. So you have low tax revenues. Uh, The bigger one of all is high interest loans. And those loans used to be loans from mostly uh, multilateral financial institutions like the World Bank and the uh, International Monetary Fund. But increasingly, uh, you have China, uh, both in terms of Chinese private lenders uh, and and others, Turkey, have come into the picture. Uh, So it's it's becoming even more difficult to discuss uh, debt relief, because now you have this combination of of, uh, private creditors and multilateral institutions. Both giving loans at very high interest rate interest rates, so uh, this I see as a really uh, problem now. But also, you know, as we look forward in the future, something that needs to be addressed uh, very critically.
0: Yeah, it's a complicated. In addition, to just the vast uh, territory, uh, the diversity. It's a it's a complex web of of challenges. Uh, you know, here is what I'm hearing from from both of you. Um, but it's not all challenges. Uh, you know, I think when we uh, look at international engagement, uh Daniel, you were the one that I think, uh, raised this and, and our our preps for this uh, conversation today, when we look at international engagement, and especially with Africa, but also other parts of the world, you know, there can be a tendency to only hear about negative things, uh, if we hear about it at all. Uh, so where is there hope in this? Um, for, for you, Daniel, or, or Patricia, either one? Daniel, if you want to, to answer first?
1: Sure, and I would I would uh, open my response by addressing everyone on this call. You know, the Episcopal Church has a sign, I think every Episcopal Church has a sign outside which says the Episcopal Church welcomes you. And I would say we are a people of hope. The work of global partnerships is your work. And you have a stake in this work. And and I thank you. I've never met you. Many, many people in Burundi or Congo or Sudan have never met you. But they, they thank you for, for whenever you have stood with them, prayed with them, and remembered that, that they, they are our sisters and brothers in the faith. And so to answer your question, hope is really among the under 25 that that Patricia made reference to. Who are remarkably resilient despite the high levels of unemployment. Yes, they are vulnerable to being recruited by terrorists. They are vulnerable to to suffer injustices like underemployment because they will take whatever will feed them for the day. But um but I can assure you that they are also full of faith. I remember a service, a worship service that I attended in the diocese of Getega in Burundi. And three quarters of of the entire church was full with with young and and, and middle-aged people. And that's that's what you don't get to see when we hear about the violence in in Congo, in Sudan, in Somalia, in Ethiopia. You don't hear the positive stories of resiliency, faith, and hope. Hope is among the, the women who For the most part, you know, a part of what they call the Mother's Union, who most of the time are the burden bearers of food insecurity and violence. They're on the front lines fighting every day. When the sun sets, they're thinking about how their families will be fed. When the sun rises, they rise up. And that is hope for me. Hope is found among the faith communities who have refused to give up on human suffering. And that is the message the Episcopal Church needs to hear. You cannot give up on those who are suffering unjustly in far away places. Hope is found when an Episcopal parish in Maine buys a boat for a bishop in South Sudan so that they, they can close over the river doing the work of evangelism. Hope is found in a small group in New Hampshire that have decided to come along women and men in Angora in a small parish to support their, their Christian education work. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but we are a people of hope. And the question is at your parish level, don't you ever discount that you don't have an opportunity to be an agent of hope because you have it.
0: Thank you for that, uh, Daniel. And you know, I think uh, as well from the perspective of
1: um,
0: many of us—not assuming everyone listening in is is a U.S. citizen—but we uh, many of us are, and uh, myself included. You know, the U.S. has a particular uh, influence around the world, um, and as you know, U.S. citizens, as constituents of our elected representatives, uh, I think we have a, a, a an exaggerated responsibility uh, and ability to to speak out about foreign policy as well. Um, but I'll use that to, to pitch that question back over to you, Patricia. Where do you see hope in this? Where are there some some successes, some some signs of mm-hmm. of good that's happening?
2: Yeah, and I really echo a lot of what Daniel uh, shared. Um, one thing I want to add on that question is looking at women women's leadership in Africa is really inspiring and exemplary. And, and I don't hear this talked about often, um, but I think it's such a big success that needs to be flagged. <laughs> um, maybe it's because I also work on, on, on gender justice issues. Um, but Africa, for example, is still a global leader in women's uh, public leadership. Rwanda has 60% of parliamentarians, they lead the world. Um, and then you have five African countries out of 20 nations uh, who have the most representation of women in parliament. So, you know, stories you hear often is of vulnerability of women, which is there, right? A lot of, you know, there are a lot of things that are happening that are not great when it comes to women on the continent. But then you have on the flip side, uh, looking at leadership Political leadership, but also leadership as uh, what Daniel shared in terms of leadership in the family. Uh, when you come, when you, it comes to food food uh, production, for example, uh, the largest population of smallholder farmers uh, on the continent are women, even though they don't always uh, own the land. They don't take that as an obstacle. Um, they fight for, for the right to you know, own the land and own all these other things that they're entitled to, uh, but also taking leadership in making sure that communities thrive. If you look at activism in, in different spaces in different countries, uh, a lot of the activists that you see you know, deciding to really embark on, 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 on something that will be beneficial to, to their communities or to their nation. Uh, a lot of times you see women on the front uh, really pushing forward uh, whatever agenda that they see is necessary for their communities. So I think we should celebrate that. I, I often do. Um, and you know, as you know, Alan, working in the policy space uh, is very difficult because it seems like you're constantly addressing challenges and bad things, uh, trying to fix things. Uh, so those stories and 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 those kind of examples are often inspiring and and I think we should really lift them up uh, for for our churches
0: yeah, and and I think you know, Patricia, you know this this work well. Um, there's a way that the relationships that Daniel, you're a part of fostering and creating, the the expertise, the perspectives that come from uh, from our Anglican siblings in and, and Africa, you know can play a part in policy making and in d c. Um, it wasn't for that purpose, but uh, you know, Daniel, you and I were just at the the Episcopal Parish Network conference, and um, I was able to meet Bishop uh, Bishop and Bishop uh, Vicentia from uh, the Diocese of Swaziland and the Diocese of Lesotho. Um, two other examples There are women across the Anglican communion in Africa, but those are two uh, two that are now you know in in the leadership positions in the church there. So it's it's reflected you know in in our own uh, in our own institution. Uh, which is which is really wonderful um shifting just a bit um so pope francis the archbishop of canterbury uh moderator for the scottish church uh, as well um were had just visited south sudan uh, and the drc recently uh so getting into an example here perhaps of, of some of these uh these dynamics of the ways the church works there Um, Daniel and and Patricia, but again, maybe starting with Daniel, uh, what impact do you think uh, a visit like that has? Uh, Maybe that one in particular, and and what, what it means for the future?
1: Let me start with the positive. I think a visit like that inspired hope and faith among the local populations in the Democratic Republic of Congo. That was a visible sign that the world has not forgotten their human suffering, which which is, which is easy to, to forget. Um, every other month, I do run a Congo network. And when, when we listen to the youth worker who is, for the province, who is also running a peace center where they're receiving refugees arriving on a daily basis, Um, They ran out of space for for women and children. And then when you look at that level of suffering and then um, watch the arrival of of the Pope in Kinshasa and close to a million people coming out for, for an open air mass in worship, in solidarity, I think it was a reminder of our interconnectedness the interconnectedness of humanity, and the same is true in in South Sudan. Um, to the Pope's credit, he, he has gone out of his way to invite the two the, the two leaders who who seem to be in disagreement, um, you know, in the Vatican. But at the end of the day, it's these leaders' responsibilities. It's it's not the the primate. It's not the primate of England or the the Pope. At the end of the day, it's these two leaders who are leading in Sudan who are going to to be responsible for what happens. And unfortunately, unless the, 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 the people are empowered enough to hold them accountable to what they have committed to, it becomes very, very, very difficult. And the gains made with such a visit, unfortunately, do not trickle down into the grassroots where the difference has to be made, where communities have to coexist and live peacefully with one another.
0: Yeah, Patricia, do you have anything to add about that visit?
2: Yeah, I think for me, one thing I, I took out of that visit was, uh, I was reminded um, that something like that will solidify you know, the role that faith-based institutions and organizations already play on the continent. Um, I mean, for example, in South Sudan, basically the South Sudan Council of Churches is the largest, you know, non-government organization if if you compare with other other entities. Uh, And it's locally run, you know, the leaders are the leaders from from the country. And, you know, as many of you know, even with foreign non-government organizations being present in a space like that, often the communities have some sort of reverence uh, towards church leaders or towards some kind of faith institutions and they listen to them more. So for me, it's hard to see how... um, we from America, from Europe, can go in a country like South Sudan and really do whatever we want to do well without the engagement of the, of the faith communities. And so that kind of visit really served uh, to remind people uh, that, you know, here you have the faith, faith leaders uh, who are doing really good work. Um, especially on issues related to building peace in countries that are experiencing conflict like South Sudan, um, where they go to the remote areas, uh, they know people in these communities, they're in their pews, uh, you know, whatever they meet on Sundays for service. Uh, They know them by name. Uh, sometimes, you know, they baptize their kids and and things like that. So they have relationships that have been built over time. Uh, And we cannot underestimate those kind of roles that faith communities play. Uh, One of the things that I wanted just to share with you all, you know, when you look at countries that are experiencing conflict and uh, maybe engaging in uh, uh, peace processes, often uh, faith leaders would be consulted. I mean, that's what we actually usually push for too uh, in our work in terms of advocacy. You know, making sure that they are consulted, and and, and often they are, uh, and and giving their advice and recommendations on what they see will be helpful to to their countries and their communities uh, as as far as solving those type of conflicts is concerned. Um, so. That kind of visit to to me was just kind of a highlight of what's already happening. Uh, and my hope is that, you know, at the bare minimum, people are inspired uh, because these are world leaders at a very high level taking their time to come visit. Uh, that in itself is encouraging. It's very hard to work in the context that a lot of our faith leaders work in and the work can be very discouraging. Um, so, I I take uh, uh that as an inspiration to them and and hopefully uh they were encouraged by that.
0: And yeah, that makes that makes sense. Uh, you know, and, and thinking about or staying with this um the, the topic of the role of faith communities, the role of faith leaders, uh, knowing that the majority of our audience, you know, here and, and with the Office of Government Relations is is based in the US, um, for either of you and your from your respective perspectives, um why should Episcopalians in the u s. be engaged? Uh, and then, you know more specifically, you know what what can they be doing?
1: Well, let me uh, start with uh, the um the theme of moral imagination. I think John Paul redderach is a, is a known peace scorer and and, and uh, practitioner. And he talks about moral imagination. But I'll take those words and, and you can look them up and, and see the definitions, you know, how to recognize turning points and possibilities and trying to find out what we have not yet found out, you know, venturing into the unknown subtle. And I'll challenge ourselves as women and men of faith, as people of faith, by raising the question of the deficit of moral imagination in our engagements. Because I I would make a huge assumption here that, that there is a deficit, that we tend to do that which is least uncomfortable and we stay within the confines of what we know and rarely risk to venture into the unknown. Now, that's a huge assumption I've just made, but there are some glimpse of, of hope in one of the, the programs that I'm just about to share with you. The Episcopal Volunteers in Mission is, is, is a program that is run by mission personnel in, in the Episcopal Church's uh, Office of Global Partnerships where we have you know, not so young adults who volunteer their time with their skills to go to a place to share those gifts and talents. And I'm going to just lift up one. And her name is Miss Wendy. Wendy is from Utah, and she has been going to Tanzania for eight years to work with clergy who are going through seminary to learn about ministries, working with people living with disabilities. As a mother, she raised two kids, with disabilities and that has been a huge gift to the church in Tanzania and so i see that that as 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 one of the few examples on how we can fill the gap on the deficits of moral imagination there's so many things that we can do and we can come up with that could fit that bill as people of faith to build those relationships and to to, to minimize human suffering and to help our, our siblings within the, the Anglican Communion and the ecumenical and interfaith circles.
0: Great, thanks for lifting that up, Daniel. Patricia, what are, what are some things or anything that people in the U.S. can do?
2: Yeah, I wanna stay with the theme that Daniel started for, for a moment uh, in terms of volunteering and um, maybe I will use the language of cultural exchange. Uh, in the secular uh, spaces, they use that more. Um, but one thing I've noticed uh, is that often it's Americans or Episcopalians or Lutherans going over there, you know, to Africa, which is great. But I also would like to encourage us uh, to to receive Africans uh, who are either coming here for mission work or for cultural exchange, because uh, the relationship needs to be mutual. Um, We can learn a lot from them. They can learn a lot from us here and uh, context and spaces do make a difference in terms of how someone experiences that culture. Um, So I think it's important to, to have, to to have this mutuality in our relationships In terms of advocacy, uh, for me, you know, I cannot close this question without plugging that because I think advocacy and civic engagement is really important. Uh, And I would like to encourage uh, you to use your privilege as a citizen of one of the most powerful, richest country with a lot of influence in the world uh, to let your voice be heard on on issues related to Africa as well. Sometimes you hear more people concerned about you know, maybe domestic things that are happening here and rightly, right rightly so, and you should. Um, but I think uh, there's a lot of influence that uh, you can you can have uh, with your members of Congress uh, or political candidates uh, when it comes to uh, Africa policy issues, Africa issues in general um so please use your voice in that way as well
1: and can i add the the power of technology you don't have to have a lot of money to do what patricia said you could you know through technology connect with so many places and and if you're searching and looking um contact our office let's let's be of help um and see what we can find so it it could be uh, a time of prayer that that you do for 15 minutes in zoom with, with somebody far out there so there's so many ways and um we welcome your questions and and how we might be of help uh, along those lines
0: yeah and i think it is a, a good time to turn to the to questions in the chat um, i've posted in the chat a couple of invitations uh, but if folks do have questions uh for for Daniel and Patricia, please please do add them. Uh, we already have a couple, so we'll turn to those. Uh, and Daniel, you're you were leaning into this, but and, and Patricia as well. You know, in in both of our in our, our work in, in Washington and your work in global partnerships, you know, relationship is such a key word. Um, and it's a key word in our in our faith um and carrying out uh in carrying out our faith as well. Um, and so things like fellowship, uh, conversation, um, celebration, worship together, you know, builds a sense of our common humanity, I think, um, and helps to to humanize one another, uh, which to me are all positive ways to to raise awareness, to feel closer to people, even if they may be physically far apart. Um, But saying that to to lead into a question from from Valerie, uh, Valerie says, I fear that so many Americans uh, simply don't think of people around the world? What are strategies that have worked to raise awareness and compassion and enthusiasm for seeing African people as our siblings full of hope and potential and thus become willing to get involved in advocacy? So what are some of the kind of the motivators, the awareness building tactics that you've seen that, that are useful?
1: I would probably tap into the the youth because that, that's where we have the, the most, most energy. Uh, and I would go back to a parish, for example, uh, a small parish like St. Anne's Parish in a small town outside Boston, uh, the city of Lowell, Massachusetts. St. Anne's Episcopal Church, the, the young people of that parish can very quickly get connected with St. Porikop Church in the slums of Cuba, uh, in Nairobi, Kenya. Or in the city of Djibouti, and they are already doing that in other ways. So it's again a question of finding out how do we now take advantage and harness what is already there. We are not creating anything new. These these are skills that they already have, and your your siblings uh, in Africa they they have the same gadgets. They 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 have. You know, Wi-Fi. They have data. They may not have a lot of money, so most of the times the data is turned off. Uh, when I have to call, I have to send a text to say, "Can you turn on your data so that I can call you?" And that's kind of how we make it. And we make it happen, and then we communicate and we get things going. So I would say that young people in in a local parish, whether it's advocacy work, I don't think it will take much. They are highly interested and motivated to get connected. And I would say, again, if you're looking for ways to how do you practically do that, that, that's where we come in. We only have one call away, and we'll be happy to explore together.
2: One of the things that I I learned after moving here, you know, I was born and raised in Tanzania, um, is the power of stories and how you tell a story. Um, I think there's a, a lot of value in telling positive stories. Too often and for too long, stories that are told in this context of Africans are usually very negative. Um, and, you know, I, I was reminded, I remember when I got here the first time, and, and I was reminded of my experience where a lot of stories of America that you saw or heard were positive. And so you form this image of all positivity, positivity and then you, you live in a context and you, you learn there's a lot of negativity too, but you know you don't hear that as much, but it makes you curious. Um, I'm saying that to, to get to a point where I want to say, please tell the positive stories. The media is doing enough to serve the negative stories. Um, and, and I think, you know, positive stories usually inspire people and encourage people. You know, there's a reason why, you know, a lot of people in colleges want to study abroad in Europe, for example. Uh, let's switch that and, and, and make sure that young people want to study abroad in, in African countries. Um, and universities, There have a lot of programs for uh, folks from, from Europe and America and other countries. Um, but... That is coming from the power of telling positive stories, and so I just wanted wanted to share that because I think it's really powerful.
0: Yeah, thanks for that reminder of of what can motivate people, you know, and bring them together. Um, I think I think that's exactly right. Uh, another question um, uh, in the uh, posed by Leon: uh, Imagine that you're faced with initiatives in Congress and the executive branch to which you need to respond, even if those initiatives. Were not the church's priorities. Uh, what is before Congress now, if anything, uh, or emerging from the executive branch that demands your attention, and how might that relate to the church's priorities?
2: Yeah, I'll would, I would just uh, start my comments with saying, you know, this has been one of the slowest congressional sessions uh, I've experienced so far, um, and so looking at what's coming out of Congress right now uh, related to Africa. Uh, they haven't done a lot that I would like to see. Um, we are focused on the appropriations process, which is important uh, in terms of, you know, supporting African government uh, in their work around responding to humanitarian situations, uh, responding to the ongoing um food crisis uh in many countries you know right now we're experiencing inflation here and the same thing is happening on the continent where commodity prices are very high um you know the war in ukraine has kind of exacerbated that uh right after we were experiencing the intensity of COVID, so uh, life has become really challenging so i don't want to take away from the appropriation work that we're doing right now it's critical and a big part of our work um, but the, you know, we are hoping that, uh, there will be more, more bills around, uh, one, one in particular for me, uh, will be on, on prevention of gender-based violence, um, that those bills haven't been introduced, uh, but we are pushing for that and, and definitely we'll make sure, uh, the EPPN network is aware of that, um, the executive branch has a strategy, Africa strategy, and they list a lot of things uh, in that strategy. Uh, a lot of the focus is around, and you know, promoting democracy, uh, national security issues. Uh, there's an ongoing competition, like Daniel said, uh, among China, Russia, and the US right now in terms of of influencing. Uh, African countries, especially after the experience uh, of of the Ukraine vote at the United Nations, where a lot of African countries did not vote with the United States. They actually, uh, you know, didn't want to take sides. And and I think that was a wake-up call uh, for for the executive branch in general, uh, realizing that they need to to engage more with African countries, uh, because... African governments and African leaders have kind of moved on and spread their wings in terms of how they engage with the world. Uh, so if, if you want to have an influence, you need to get in the ring. Uh, um, so anyway, so there isn't a lot coming out right now, but there's all these kind of uh, geopolitical uh, games that are happening right now that are also important in terms of uh, policy work moving forward.
0: Sure, that makes sense. Well, uh, I want to turn to just a couple of wrap up questions um, as, as we conclude our time today. Uh, this sort of 30,000 foot view, maybe even higher than that uh, of, of US engagement in Africa, but I think it's been, I know for me, a helpful conversation uh, and hopefully for others tuning in. Uh, it's helpful for, for you all as well to get your bearings and, and learn where you can plug in with this work. Um, Daniel, I'll turn to you first, uh, sort of a closing question. Uh, you've talked about what the Global Partnerships Office does and your role there, um, maybe a, a step, stepping back a bit from the details of, of Africa, but um, more fundamentally our engagement. What's your perspective uh, on ways to approach mission uh, in the 21st century?
1: So in the, um, in the current setup, if you look at church growth, even with all the problems that we have described, the church is growing tremendously in Africa. Now, when we talk about mission work or missionary work, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that because of colonialism. And so when we we talk about how do we engage today, part of it is decolonizing what, our engagements are about, especially around theological education and leadership development. There's so much we can learn from the continent. So when you think about how do we or should we engage with Africa, think about the gifts you will receive. Not so much you going to give, but the gifts that you're going to receive by your engagement and through your engagement. And, and, and I would say that the young adults service call that, that Alan lifted up earlier is a great way and a great opportunity because the, the, the young adults who engage with their counterparts on the continent, they are ready and eager to talk about the colonial legacies and how that needs to be put to the side as they create. The what what I call, you know, through moral imagination, the new priorities and new ways of engagement through relationship building. In other words, we are not going there to teach or to educate. We are going there to engage in a mutual relationship fellowship of learning together, you know, growing together in the faith, and honestly, an exciting journey of of, of mutual learning and collaboration. So, If you know of a young adult out there who who has, you know, a couple of months that they could spend, again, we are only a phone call away, an email away, we are happy to to share about that. But there is a lot of excitement around decolonizing theological education and leadership development and and how that is the gift to the Episcopal Church and the church in Europe, as well as uh, the church in Africa.
0: Thanks for that. Uh, Taking that big question and giving a great uh, sort of exclamation point um, answer for that. Uh, I think it's so important to keep that uh, posturing in mind. Um, So, Patricia, as as sort of a a broad, you know, wrap-up question for you as well. um, Thinking about your work in the context of government relations with with the U.S. government, do you have anything more to add? Um, so the dynamics going on, and things that people can do, uh what you were engaged in, uh, you take that the direction you'd like.
2: Yeah, thank you. That's very dangerous. Um <laughs> <I'm> joking. <laughs> um, yeah, one one thing I just want leave to leave people with uh, is uh along the lines of what Daniel mentioned, is this mutual partnership, uh also when you're doing or supporting programs or projects. Um I don't think it's it's feasible in the 21st century to go in and say, I want to do this project for you. Uh I, you know, we need to, to posture differently and say, you know, ask them what do you need me to do? Uh, what do you want from me? Um and so in position of uh projects, programs, or um sometimes in even Cartoon position uh, is is very much rejected right now on the continent, and, and I think there's there's a certain uh, experience that people have had that Daniel uh, highlighted that uh, have just made people fed up. Um, so it's really important to to be uh, to consult and and to be sure that whatever you are engaged in. Uh, whatever you're trying to to support is really coming from the folks you're engaging with on the continent and not from you uh, as an individual or from from your church and parish uh, because that's what you want to do. Let's do what they want us to do. Uh, and And that's what we strive to do uh, when it when it comes to advocacy. Uh, you know, when we're doing advocacy on different, different things, we really try our best uh, to make sure that we get feedback um, or consult uh, with our Anglican communion partners uh, on the continent uh, to make sure that it's relevant and, and, and we are sending a message that they want us to, to send. Uh, and when we have opportunities for them to be in Washington or in New York, for example, uh, making sure that they also, to give them the space also to to visit and share that message with policymakers uh, in those uh, spaces as well. Uh, and that's really important. And I think that's what, uh, you know, is distinctive in terms of organizations or institutions that have uh, these kind of relationships versus uh, a think tank that is mainly focusing on on doing research uh, without engaging with people on the ground. Um, so I will leave it at that, Alan. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you, Patricia, and thank you, Daniel. Uh, you know, I, I see Patricia, your background is uh, U.S. Capitol building, and Daniel, yours is the a map of Africa. Um, I'm here in, in a home office, and so just want to to note that to remind everyone tuning in that wherever you are, you can be a part of this work. You can be a part of this relationship building. Uh, So I hope that the resources that we've shared are helpful, that this conversation is inspiring. Um, And as as Daniel mentioned, um, and I'll emphasize, our offices are here as resources for you. So please do reach out to the Global Partnerships Office, uh, to the Office of Government Relations, uh, for any needs that you have uh, as we continue this relationship building work together. Um, So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, Susie, uh, from the Office of Government Relations, who's done tech support. She also covers our environmental portfolio. Uh, and thank you to natalie for your uh, for your interpretation services today as well. Um appreciate you all tuning in and look forward to engaging with you next time. Take care. The Office of Government Relations aims to represent the policy priorities of the Episcopal Church to the u s. government in washington, d c and to influence policy and legislation on critical issues, all while highlighting voices and experiences of Episcopalians and Anglicans globally. The Office facilitates the Episcopal Public Policy Network, a grassroots network of Episcopalians engaged in the Ministry of Public Policy Advocacy. Take action and learn more by following the links in the description. The Episcopals podcast is produced by the staff of the Office of Government Relations with the support from our podcast engineer ellie singer and project manager chris Sekema, thanks for listening and join us next time on episcopals
3: for 100 years the generous donations of episcopalians and supporters to the good friday offering have helped the christian presence in the land of the holy one to be a vital and effective force for peace and understanding among all of God's children. A lifeline of hope in times of genuine need in years past, the Good Friday offering continues to support churches, medical programs, and schools today. Now more than ever, we celebrate the centennial of this historic fund. Your support is needed. Give online at IAM.EC goodfridayoffering Good Friday Offering or text GFO to The Good Friday offering, celebrating a century of gifts and rejoicing in 2,000 years of good news.